Well, hello, Pastor Matt here. Just want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in to this message. We here at New Life Baptist Church hope that in making these resources available to the public, that we'll help to edify the body of Christ at large, and that you personally will increase in your knowledge of God, leading to a deeper love for Him. First John chapter 2, the name of our sermon today is Spiritual Growth. It's First John chapter 2. It was initially going to be verses 12 through 17, but your pastor can't stop talking, so I don't think we're going to be able to finish all of it. So we're going to focus on verses 12 through 14. Let's stand up one more time in reverence for the Word of God, and let's read and we'll pray and dive in this morning. This is the word of the living God. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful and so thankful to be here today. Lord, we do not deserve to be in your presence. We don't deserve to be called children of God. But we thank you for the perfect work of Jesus Christ that brings us into your presence and washes us clean. We thank you so much for your grace and your mercy towards us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would help us to see these truths of spiritual growth in your word, Lord, and how All of these stages are beautiful and part of your plan. And I pray that we would all desire, as we leave here today, desire to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. May you be glorified this morning. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You be seated. I write to you, I am writing to you, little children. As you kept reading, some of your translations switched to saying, I have written to you. I am writing to you, little children. I have to be honest, whenever I first started to um, examine this text, I was like, what in the world is John talking about? Why is he doing this? You know, from our last section last week, when he was talking about this new commandment and and abiding in Christ and loving one another and and the love that the brethren should share for one another. And then he just kind of, out of nowhere, is like, I'm writing to you children, I'm writing to you fathers, and then he repeats himself. What, What is going on here? It's almost like you see him just start chasing a squirrel mid-sentence, right? Does any of, anybody in here do that? Anybody? Just, just, just Haley, huh? Just Haley and my brother, all right. You know, you're thinking about something, and then before you know it, four seconds later, there's another thought in your head. And before you know it, there's another thought in your head, and then you forgot what you started talking about. Or you forgot what you started writing about. 
you know, we get easily distracted. And so at first, it kind of seems like that's what John is doing here. But there's so much richness to what John is saying. I want to call your attention first to um, his mention of little children. I am writing to you, little children. Believe it or not, he's not saying that this is, you know, this isn't a Sunday school lesson. It's not specifically for little kids. This is a term of endearment that John is using because of his great love for the church, because of his great love for the brothers. And because, no doubt, at this stage in his life, he's, he is a spiritual father. People look up to him and, and see him as an authority. He was an apostle. He walked with the Savior. He saw the risen Christ. So his words carried much weight, right? But he understood this, and he says, Listen, children, my little children. This is a word that's only used by John, actually. Only John uses this word in the New Testament, so he really cared deeply about it. And the first time that you see him use it, it's actually Jesus saying, My little children. And so John, I'm sure, remembering how Jesus treated them and how he was when he walked with them, understands these are my little children. I love you, my little children. And we see, we get some further explanation of who he's writing to specifically because he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Who he is seeing as the little children are Christians. Because your sins are forgiven. We all know this morning that not everybody's sins are forgiven. Therefore, not everyone is truly a child of God. We are all children of God in the sense that God has given everyone life. But only some among us whose sins are forgiven are truly the children of of the Most High God who will spend eternity with Him and praise Jesus for that. My little children, your sins are forgiven. I want you to notice your sins are forgiven. We're going to be examining, as you can see by our our title of the sermon today, we're going to be examining spiritual growth, namely three stages of the Christian life. And so when we see John opening up here, he's, he's kind of prefacing this by saying, this is who I'm talking to, is my little children in the faith, because your sins are forgiven. What does that mean? That from the newborn babe in Christ to the old about to pass in, over into glory, from top to bottom, young to old, and everyone in between, if you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus... You are as forgiven day one as you will ever be. There is no one in here who is forgiven of their sins, who is more forgiven than somebody else's sins. If you're forgiven, you're forgiven. The pastor doesn't have access to some special level of forgiveness of sins. No. An eight-year-old child who is born again by the Spirit of God, is as much forgiven of his sins as John was in writing this. Wow! What an incredible truth that is. 
all of us are as forgiven if we are in Christ. All of us are as forgiven as we will ever be. Praise God for that. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, the child of God who was born only yesterday is not as completely sanctified as he will be. He is not as completely instructed as he will be. He is not as completely conformed to the image of Christ as he will be, but he is completely pardoned as the full-grown saint. Wow, what a God we serve. John goes on to say, for his name's sake. Some of us read the scriptures in the morning before work and before we go about our day. You, know, you grab your cup of coffee, you sit down in the living room or in your bedroom or wherever. And as you're wiping the sleep out of your eyes and still yawning and trying to wake up and engage and praying that the coffee will come with full strength this morning, it's so easy to read through this and totally miss what John is saying. He says, for his name's sake. Look at it with me. Verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Why? For his name's sake. Today we have so self-appointed Christianity, what the Bible is about, what salvation is about, that God's up there and he just can't stop thinking about you and he misses you so much. And that's why he sent Jesus. But what does our scripture say? Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Salvation is for the glory of God. This isn't Pastor Matt making this up. This isn't because Pastor Matt believes a certain way. That's what John is writing to us. Your sins are forgiven not because you raised your hand one time, not because you walked to the altar one time, not because of anything external, or even because, as the song says, He just didn't want heaven without us. That's not why. Your sins are forgiven for the glory of Jesus Christ. That Christ may be glorified among the nations, among all generations, for all time and then when we cross over into glory he will be exalted and glorified all the days of eternity that's why sins are forgiven you know what to some of you that might sound really harsh to your ears like well matt just doesn't believe that god really loves us that's not true at all God clearly loves us with an unfathomable level of love. But whenever we begin to understand that salvation is of the Lord for the Lord's glory, this gives us an assurance of salvation like no other. Why? Because if you were saved because you raised your hand one time, what about when you dropped your hand? If the action of raising your hand was what saved you, what about when your hand went back into your pocket? If the action of walking to the altar is what saved you, then what about when you walked away from the altar? Do you understand? We are saved by Christ and for Christ. And what that means is that you, if you are saved, you will always be saved. Why? Because it's not for you. You are not the end result. Christ's glory is. 
God Almighty is not going to leave the fullness of His glory and Him being glorified in our hands. Why? Because we're, who, who, is, who in here is perfect? Who in here has never sinned? Do you see? Our hands are too small to carry the full measure of the weight of the glory of Christ. So what does Christ do? God the Father and Christ in eternity past have made an agreement, a covenant, that they will save, that God the Father will save people for His Son. Church, that is an eternal guarantee that is completely irrevocable. If you are in Christ, you will always be in Christ. Do you understand that? When you really wrap your head around that and understand that I'm saved for God, you will then begin to understand that when I stumble, when I sin, when I fail, that does not remove salvation from me. God does now not, He doesn't now begin to count my sins against me because it doesn't depend on me. Is that making sense to you? Salvation is of the Lord, for the Lord's glory. Are we blessed recipients? Absolutely. Does that mean we, don't, we can't enjoy it? Ah, certainly not. That's just how good God is and how efficient His work is. Is that when He's doing something for His own glory, we benefit. We benefit greatly from it. Praise God for that. That's good news to me. And so let's look at our three stages of the Christian life. We see as he turns in verse 13, I am writing to you fathers. And you notice that there was father with a capital F and fathers here with a lowercase f. What John is doing is speaking to three different stages of people in the Christian life. Believe it or not, Christ's work in the person's heart, in the person's life, is that they would continue to grow. It's that they would continue to be shaped and molded into the image of the Son. And so what we see here is John writing to three specific stages. And we're going to look at what he says about that stage. When he says, Father's Notice what he says with fathers. When, we, when he says children, notice what he says with children. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at them starting with children. He begins with fathers here, but so we're not bouncing back and forth, and we can kind of look at this in, in, the, in, in, in the chronological sense. We're going to start with children. Notice he says in verse 13, because you know him who is from the beginning, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Some of your Bibles might start at verse 14 saying, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Here, when he says children, we don't see it in English. But the reason why our Bibles say little children at the beginning and then children here is because in the original language, it's actually two completely different words with two completely different meanings. When he's saying little children, it's a term of endearment. But whenever he says children here, he's referring to a level of maturity. Whenever you look at the original word, that's what it entails. 
Whenever you look at how it's used throughout the rest of the New Testament, he's always speaking to children, kids. But here in this sense, it is a spiritual terminology, not necessarily just little kids. Are you following? Are you tracking with me? He's talking about children in the faith. And what does he say about them? At the end of verse 13, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. How many of you in here know that all children have a father? They were birthed by a mother and a father. That's the only way that we come into this earth. That's how God has designed it. And in the same sense, how the way he's writing it here is, I write to you, children, because you know the capital F, Father. Not because you know a father, because you know the Father. As children in the faith, even when you're just barely born again, you come to know the Father. John 8, 19 and John 14, say, 7 say, tell us that knowing Jesus is knowing the Father. That when we come to know Christ, if we have seen Christ, if we have come to know Christ, then we have the Father also. But if we don't have Christ, then we don't have the Father either. And so that's what he's saying here is, you know this Father because you have come to know Jesus. Now, how many of you in here, when you were first born again, you knew all that there was to know? Anybody? No, not one of us. How many of you in here who have had a baby, did that baby come out walking and talking and did he leave the hospital and go get a job? Anybody? Really? That's surprising. No, there are stages of growth, aren't there? I believe that everything in this world, all of the systems, all of the, all of the way that things work in this world, teaches us something about God. And if you think about how the, the birthing process works of that day, those of you who have children, think about when your wife first got pregnant. You women, think about when you first got pregnant and you're waiting for nine months. You go through all of those unthinkable things in that period of nine months that us men just don't know about. I've heard of men falling asleep at various times that were just really, really bad times to fall asleep during those nine months. We're in that labor room. Us men don't have to go through that, but the mothers, you understand. And then the fathers as well, for those nine months, you're eagerly anticipating, what is this baby going to be like? What is God going to do in his or her life? What color hair is he going to have? Is he going to have my smile and, and her eyes? Is he going to have my brains and, and, my, and her sense of humor? Is he going to have my height? Is he going to talk like me? Is she going to like dresses? Is she going to want to be the, the first women president? What, is, what are they going to be like? And then that day comes and you rush to the hospital. And I'm given to understand that this can be a long process. Sometimes 24 hours of being in labor, in that labor room, and it's excruciating. And it hurts, and it's, there's anguish, and there's tears. 
And the father is just there, restless. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. The family's waiting in the waiting room. And then finally, you hear a different cry, and it's the cry of that baby. And that baby comes out into the world, and all of a sudden, a new life is born. And the father runs out of that labor room and runs into the waiting room and says, It's it's a boy, it's a girl. And she's beautiful. She looks just like her mom. It's a boy, and his name's going to be James. His name's going to be whatever. They're so beautiful, and they're healthy, and everything went great. How much joy fills that family's life at that moment? Unthinkable joy, right? I hear parents always talk about, there was, this is the greatest joy in my life, is this baby being born. Church, that's what it's like when a person is born again. A person crosses over from death to life. And whose anguish is it that brought that child into the kingdom? It was the anguish of Jesus Christ. He suffered greatly. He died that we might live. He died that we might come to a saving faith and come to be born again. There's a reason why he uses this terminology, you see, is that we're born again according to John chapter 3, that no one sees the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And for the community of believers, whenever a person crosses over from death into life, there's so much excitement. Wow, look at what God has done. I wonder what he or she will do for Christ. But most importantly, look at what Christ is already doing in him. And that moment is so full of joy. How many of you in here who have children, after 5 or 10 or 20 years of that child being completely mentally stable and nothing wrong health-wise, if that child still refuses to learn how to walk. What happens, parents, if your child is 30, 40, 50 years old and still doesn't know how to put fork to mouth, and that baby still can't feed itself? Well, that's what the parents are there for, right? Is to train this child, to teach this child how to walk, how to talk, how to think, what, how, to, how to have manners. They, they draw boundaries within the home. You can't go here. You can't touch that. Don't run into the street. But so often when a person is born again into the kingdom of God, we say, okay, go figure it out. I'm glad that you're born again. See you later. Make sure you keep coming to church on Sundays, though. And we abandon this child And so many little born-again children don't have people coming alongside them and saying, let me show you how to be a Christian. Just the same way a a brand-new born baby has no earthly idea how to walk, can't can't put a sentence together, can't tie their shoes, they can't feed themselves. So it is with a newborn believer. That newborn believer has no earthly idea how to be a Christian. They just know, I'm alive now. 
That's all that I know is that I heard about this Jesus and now I'm alive. But if we abandon the child, or if you just always see the child at home and you assume that they're growing, well, they're getting bigger. Surely they're learning how to do the things that they're supposed to do. And you go to work and you go about your life and you never train that child up. How is that child going to grow? Moreover, what about when it's us that we've been in the church for 5, 10, 15, 20, 40, 80 years and we still haven't learned to feed ourselves. We still haven't learned to dress ourselves in the full armor of God. And we still haven't learned to stand on our own two feet. What happens then? In Hebrews 5, the writer of Hebrews says, about this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the, hear this, word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Does that not mark so many churches today? With all the love in my heart, please hear me. There is a drastic difference between being old in church and mature in Christ. The two are not the same. And we cannot, we do each other, we do ourselves, church, no favors whatsoever when we stand idly by without coming alongside the newborn baby or without coming alongside that person who has been in the faith for a long time. Notice John's not saying you're not a Christian. John is just telling us about the levels of maturity. So it's not about condemning anyone and saying you're not even in the faith. It's about encouraging one another to grow. How many of you in here know that Christ did not suffer an incredible amount of pain and anguish so that people would go to church? We know that to be true. Surely, 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 Christ did not give his life. Surely, the Father did not send his one and only Son into the world so that people would be churchgoers. Anyone? Surely, he gave his life that we would be born again, as the scriptures say. Surely, he gave his life, as Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30 say, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. How do you know if you're being conformed to the image of Christ is where do you land in these stages? We are to grow up in every way into Him 
who is the head, Ephesians 4.15. So how do we do this? Look at again, he says back in verse 13, after fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning, I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And then again in verse 14, I am writing to you, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and uh, you have overcome the evil one. Don't be thrown off by the mention of man here. He's definitely also speaking to women, both young man and young woman. We know that a church is not made up of just men, but this is just the way that they spoke at that time. John says at this stage of life that you have overcome the evil one. He says that you're strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. If we're looking closely, we will notice a succession. That you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The young man in the church, the young woman in the church has moved out of childhood and into this young man, young woman stage by very faithful study of the scriptures and prayerful application of the scriptures to their life. I don't know how many of us understand this or know this or have heard this, but what you learn through the scriptures is that it is impossible, church, it is impossible for us to grow in the Lord without being in the word it just won't happen now it is true that plenty of people know a lot of bible and have not matured so it's not a guarantee that you mature by reading it is absolutely a work of the spirit and one that requires great prayer great great honesty but what did jesus say in john's chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer sanctify them In your truth, your, anyone? Your word is truth. Jesus is saying, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is the process of putting off the old sinful ways and growing in Christ's likeness. What he's praying is that we would do that by being sanctified by the word. But if we don't put this word, if we don't store up this word in our hearts, if we don't examine them carefully, church, how can we expect to grow? That newborn baby, if he's not fed, how does that newborn baby ever grow? It doesn't. That's why we must be in the scriptures. We must be in the word. And that's what John is alluding to here is that you young men, you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. This word abide just means to remain, to stay, to keep. And in 2 Peter 3.18 it says, Grow in the grace 
and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The grace and the knowledge. How do we get knowledge without pursuing the Scriptures? This is where we learn of our great God and King Jesus Christ. is through the Word. And allowing that Word to abide in us. A young man or woman in the faith is someone who has been growing in the grace and knowledge of God. And has become convinced of certain biblical truths. A young man or woman in the faith that is that person who is ready to rebuke and exhort, as it says in Titus. As a matter of fact, let's go ahead and turn to Titus chapter 2. And as you do that, Paul writes to Timothy, who we all know is a young man, in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. You see, Timothy was a younger person in age, but here he was setting the standard for the church because it doesn't have anything to do with age is the point I'm making there. David, what about David? He was a young man, wasn't he, whenever he defeated Goliath? That kid wouldn't have even been able to vote today when he defeated Goliath. He was very young when he became king. He wrote many psalms as a young man in age. But a young man in the faith is ready to go into the hottest parts of the battle, armed with the sword of truth and clothed in the battle-tested armor of God. Proverbs 20, 29, the glory of young men is their strength. Psalm 18, 34, he trains my hands for war. The young man or woman in the faith has much yet to learn, but they have overcome the evil one by faithfully storing up Scripture and prayerfully, prayerfully living the Scripture. Moreover, they have made it out of the most vulnerable stage of life, childhood. They have made it from death to life, from infancy to adolescence to young adulthood. The stage of life is not fully mature. There's still much to learn and to grow in. But you are far from being a child anymore as you have become more firmly rooted and established in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Last point, Father, and I hope you're already in Titus chapter 2. But we need only to zoom out and consider how John is writing this letter to see what a father in the faith is like. Notice that John has drawn a very hard line all throughout chapter 1, earlier in chapter 2, he said some really hard things, didn't he? But he was speaking the truth. Why? Because he was looking at his audience as his little children. How many of you parents in here will see your child running into the street and say, eh, they'll figure it out? How many of you parents in here will see your child reaching for that hot pan or that hot stove, and you'll say, eh, he'll figure it out. None of you. You all say, I remember my mom always saying, terco, don't do that. Don't touch that. Don't go there. Don't do this. Don't do that. Well, that sure sounds mean and unloving, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. She looked out for my life. And if I hadn't been told not to run into the street, 
I might have become, I might not be here today, right? And it's the same thing with these fathers, these mothers in the faith, is that you look out for everyone beneath you. You train them up. You come alongside them and teach them in the faith. It's not, again, it is a spiritual state. I want you to look at Titus chapter 2 with me. Here he is writing on how to organize the church. And he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Listen, older men are to be sober-minded dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive, to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. This is Christ's model for his church that the fathers that you would come alongside the young men the young children in the faith and that you would be the one to say let me show you how this is done that you mothers in the faith would come alongside the younger women and that you would train them up in the faith teaching them what is good as it said in Titus Not that we would stand and and condemn different age groups, that the children would condemn the fathers or that the fathers would condemn the young men, but that we would all as one cohesive family unit be working in sync with the Spirit of God to do the work of the ministry in the church. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, condemning this church for not having many fathers. He says, you have a lot of guides, but you don't have many fathers. And he says, for this reason, I'm sending to you Timothy, my child in the faith, to teach you how to be a Christian. Do you see the young, the old father showing the young man how it's done? And by that, he's teaching the church how it's done, how we're to live, how we're to walk according to the Scriptures in step with the Spirit of God. John says, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. This wise old saint has amassed much knowledge and wisdom over the years. They have become convinced of deep theological truths, deep doctrinal truths that the young children, the young men, and the children can't understand yet. But that father, that mother in the faith knows that this all amounts to 
one thing. Knowledge of him who is from the beginning. That all of this, all that I have learned, the Father would say, over my life, all amounts to me knowing my Father more. At the end of the day, that is the point of all of these different stages in life. Is that we would know the Father. That we come to know Him as a child. That we fight for Him as a young man. And that as a father, as a mother in the faith, we would teach the younger ones about this great father that we have come to know. There's not one stage that's better than the other. We need the newborn babies so that we can keep generations going in the faith. We need the young men to go and fight and be zealous and fight the good fight. We need the fathers, the mothers, to train up the younger generations. We need all the pieces, all of the parts. But most importantly, you individually need to be, and I individually need to be progressing through these stages of the Christian life. Because otherwise, John would have written, I am writing to you children. I am writing to you young ones who have yet to grow in the faith. But no, he addresses all three stages because a church, as a church, we ought to have all three stages working together and building up the body of believers. What a beautiful system our God has created. What an incredible body of, of, of community our God has made and set forth for us. Our aim is not to prove that we are more mature than each other, but to help each other mature. It's not to say that you're still a baby. It's not to say that you're an old man. It's not to say you young men have a hard head. It's that all stages would come alongside one another and work hand in hand for the glory of God. Let's stand.